I never believed what they told me. I think that's the crucial thing about mm -hmm. science. Mm -hmm. I believe what I saw myself. Science was not a question of your political opinion or your orientation. It seemed to me that science was a way of finding out directly about the world from evidence. And uh, I had never seen that in my life. I had only seen people saying, you do that because he said so, or you do that because he knows more than you do. And you know, I was a typical, you know, but I'm sure everybody's subjected to where the arguments are from authority. You read it in the book and it's got to be true because it's in the book. And in order to really understand a problem like the like the material basis of heredity, you had to know what people had done in the past. Mm -hmm. And you had to know things that were out, out of your field. And so that's where I really had problems. My instructors, for the most part, wanted me to stick to what I was supposed to do, do the homework, do the da-da, and not deviate to other fields. And you can't do geology without going outside and studying nature directly. There's no way. And I thought that used to be the case with biologists. There was always a field component in the early days of biology. But now biology has moved into pharmaceutic pharmaceuticals, into hospital mentality. People talk about lower animals and what they're talking about are rats. And the, the naturalists, who I think do a huge service to the quality of life on Earth, the naturalists are marginalized. Maybe four or five very fine ones have either died or retired over the last decade, and none of them have been replaced. They've been replaced by... NIH cancer type biologists, and is I never for, wanted to. Is that for a lack of suitable replacements? No, there are plenty of suitable replacements. It's because the policy of the chairman and the other people that make decisions is to hire uh, the person who will optimize the rate of cash flow per square foot of university of university space. We know space. about that very well. I'm sure you do, and. I have resisted that, and I'm very happy to resist that. And people say, well, she's not a scientist, she's a philosopher. So it's not as a woman, it's as a philosopher right. that I but get But I, I think you're remarkable because um, I noted that your laboratory operates on perhaps a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars. We've been a year. cut to zero, I want to tell you, in public. Oh. We've been cut to zero because the people that are reading the proposals are doing only sequencing, and they don't recognize the names of any of the organisms, and they don't like organismal biology. And so we get terrible grades on peer review. And and after 30 years, we kept to zero. Welcome to What's Left, the weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and writer and teacher Jessica. We're online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find that link to our blog in the episode notes. You can also find our personal social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZPKE on Instagram and Jesse's Twitter handle as at jhomey 89 uh, Please subscribe, rate, view, turn on your notifications and share your favorite episode where you found this episode. All right. Um, well, today we'll be having a discussion with uh, Tom, um, a writer and Marxist on a piece that he wrote on, on, the science, on science and from a Marxist lens uh, joining us from Germany, uh, uh, a group, Free Left Future, Freya Link Zunkoft. Andy, I would like for you to introduce more on, briefly, if you can share with us your connection with Tom, uh, since this is something that you thought we should uh, interview Tom for. I, Jeff Straw sent us this article, a series of articles written that the, the title of the work is, by, of, of this four-part series, 
series is Virology as Ideology. Um, and it really goes through four parts. A, crit a, a Marxist critique of science, then I would say of the medical complex, which Tom will tell us more about, um, then about the virology, and then I think the fourth part goes into, and has it hasn't been written yet, goes into uh, what would science look like in a real free society, in a revolutionary society. Um, and I just found it fascinating. It very much dovetails with the things that I'm coming to myself as a Marxist and socialist and runs contrary to the kind of um, ways that so socialists and Marxists, I think, in the past have held up science as such a wonderful thing and separated it from this nasty thing that we often talk about in capitalism. The science is wonderful. The capitalism is awful. And I feel like Tom has really solved a riddle here and written a great four-piece work. I'm not going to say everything I agree with, but I feel like anyone who has wondered about what the hell is going on, what what world is being exposed to us through COVID should read this series to try to under, to come to their own understanding, a deeper understanding of what world do we actually live in. So I'm really excited Tom has agreed to uh, do this interview. I think we're going to be talking mostly about the science part today, but I think it'll it, it, Tom may talk about more than that. So thank you very much, Tom, for being for willing to do this. Yeah, thank you very much for for inviting me on to uh, to speak about what I wrote. I think we should start somewhere uh, with fundamentals. Uh, Tom, you belong part of the free left future in Germany, as I stated in the very beginning of this intro. What can you share with us how this group um, operates out in Germany? Yeah, so the Freilich um, Zukunft is a, a group that emerged out of this larger Freilinke, free left movement, uh, which coalesced uh, in the German protest movement. So the resistance to the corona measures as an attempt to consolidate uh, the forces in there that considered themselves part of the left, um, that recognized, at least from our perspective, that a traditional and consistent left-wing values would make one opposed to the corona measures, really regardless of the scientific justification or content behind them, that uh, went through a, and also as a way of, of asserting also publicly and making clear at these protests, making it harder for them to be smeared as right-wing fascist. Everyone is familiar with the, um, the denigration that these protests uh, underwent, right? And so we emerged out of that to, one, try and take the message uh, of the critique of the corona measures to a broader, in particular, left-wing population. Uh, on the other hand, to make the, the broader population uh, to undermine this falsehood that was being propagated in the bourgeois media, that the protest had an overwhelmingly right-wing character. Uh, and finally, to also critique the corona protest movement itself from the left and to uh, help expose the the right-wing demagogues which were active in the movement and the controlled opposition that was there to try and misdirect um, and manipulate that resistance. The Freilinger Zukunft emerged out of a uh, clarification process within that movement uh, among a section, uh, among other things, without getting into factional details, uh, was particularly opposed to this equivocation over neither left nor right, uh, trying to make a more rigorous, consistently left-wing line, not not afraid of that left. 
and what it really entails in terms of our tradition. Um, and we have in particular focused on theoretical clarification, on um, trying to work towards um, you know, a rigorous analysis of what's happened, uh, trying to expose a lot of the misinformation, fraud, confusion that is um, yeah, ubiquitous uh, throughout the, uh, not only in the general society, but absolutely within the resistance movement itself, uh, which is often prey to various species of disinformation uh, and manipulation. And so we've tried to criticize that. Uh, we've made an effort to have a broad, still, multiple stream or current uh, left-wing approach. So there are anarchists and Trotskyites, as well as the uh, fairly dominant anti-revisionist character, I would say, among the membership, uh, but have really focused in particular on this uh, theoretical and uh, propaganda agitation work to, to expose and enlighten these. And of course, this essay um, arose out of that, that same approach. Uh, so this essay was uh, my attempt to overcome this issue in particular of, of scientism, I would say within the Marxist and the broader left uh, to really, again, bring back in much the same way that, um, you know, consistently, I think from the Freilinke and Freilinke Zukunft, our point from the beginning is we have a consistent orientation to the left-wing commitments and values. Um, it is a lot of people who claim or imagine themselves to have, which have lost sight of that. Uh, in the same way, the Marxist tradition and the leftist tradition in general um, has a long, long culture of skepticism about um, what has called itself science. That runs all the way back to Marx himself, uh, that, that capital was a an imminent critique of uh, an ideological production of the ruling class and their uh, those who worked for them, right? Uh, that was a mix of real science and also science as ideology, science as a way of, of manipulating. Uh, and there's been a, a long tradition throughout Marxism uh, to criticize this, uh, in particular, the, the title of the essay is inspired by the, the phenomenal uh, book and lecture series by Richard Levantin, uh, Biology as Ideology, um, which I take to be um, one of the, the most um, erudite and, and profound expressions of a, of a Marxist approach to science, uh, as one can see also in his book with Richard Levins, uh, the dialectical biologist uh, laying out what what it means to to apply you know, Marxist approach to the to natural sciences. And so here uh, I felt compelled to write this essay, although it is really far far beyond my competence. You know, my background is not in the sciences at all, uh, and I have written this essay with much trepidation and much self doubt. At uh, many times, um, you know, didn't want to publish it or go forward with it. Had lots of uh, reservations, but thought that it needed to be said, and that these points that uh, I had been lucky enough to be in a position to observe and to be in contact with the people who were making these critiques uh, that hadn't been put together really in a single place. And so I think a lot of what that essay is doing is really just presenting in a unified form uh, the critiques that have been you know, uh, coalescing within the broader leftist networks I'm familiar with um, in the corona resistance. Uh, that's where this essay came out of and where my political uh, orientation is. And 
when you say that political orientation, Tom, you 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 would self describe yourself as a as a Marxist, yes? Yes, Marxist, Marxist Leninist. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Right, because right before the recording, you we had a brief discussion, and you were saying you're working, you're the group that you're with, that you're affiliated with, is a mixture of various uh, political affiliations, right? Like it could be our anarchist in there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So the the file link Zukunft is a, a cross current um, group. Uh, so the 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 dividing line is is left. Uh, um, but again, as you can imagine, that has led to lots of complicated discussions and debate within our group, within the broader movement. Uh, a lot of those are are probably not worth delving into today. Um, and also, it's not a group that is exclusive. So one can also be a member of um, a communist party or a different organization, and also uh, part of it, it's it's an association really of of people trying to formulate, like I said, a leftist, clear and uh, rigorous response to the current situation. We're we're familiar with disaccords within a group. <laughs> um, Jessica, you were going to say something. Sure. Yeah. No. Um, really enjoyed the article. First of all. Um, yeah, I'm I'm curious, like, I don't know. I mean, I think we've all encountered in the sort of COVID critical spaces, especially among the left or people who self-identify as left in some capacity as being, you know, very critical of the lockdowns, very critical of the injection project. Um, but, you know, this article goes more than a step several steps further in terms of panning back and like critiquing something broader which is this entire institution of scientism virology scientific expertise um so i'm curious like when you say you had a lot of trepidation publishing it um is that simply because you feel it's so like radical or what's your what was your hesitation yeah, I would say that. Um, so, so like I said, actually, I think I mentioned in the essay that it began, uh, yeah, a year ago or so, uh, as a book review, uh, essentially of Virus Mania by um, Klaus Kohlein, Torsten Engelbrecht, um, and then there's a later edition of it that has been has the additional co-authors of uh, Stefano Scogolio and uh, Samantha Bailey, uh, and that book was one that I found incredibly compelling uh, when I encountered it again through this corona movement I found it very interesting that that book itself I think another noteworthy characteristic of it is it's actually quite cautious in the conclusions and this more radical uh, and deep critique of virology that has coalesced it seems to me particularly since the the resistance to the corona measures um, goes further than what a lot of that pre-COVID literature, except for a few kind of outlying radicals, were saying. There are obvious reasons why it seemed beyond the pale. I still think even there are aspects of the the critique uh, and the camp that has put forth the critique uh, that are, are flawed. Uh, and of course, I mean, the thing that was most compelling to me, uh, in some sense, was the lack of a compelling critique of this material. So this material had been in existence for a while, especially virus mania. Um, 
but also other texts, uh, you know, a lot of the perspective of this is informed even by texts that are not so, who, who basically agree with the basic assumptions of virology, uh, but have pointed out the fraud or inaccuracy regarding vaccines specifically, uh, in particular, um, Dissolving Illusions by Roman Bistranic and Susan Humphreys, I would note as a really phenomenal book, especially because it also highlights um, a lot of the history of working class resistance to vaccines. It's a bit of a tangent, but uh, a really interesting point and is also really scrupulous with these detailed um, graphs and data. And they're very transparent about the evidence and the data. And you actually can go and reconstruct their graphs. And uh, I find it very compelling. So yeah, I came across, in particular, I think it was this critique of the efficacy of vaccines, um, which I'd already, in some sense, been vaguely familiar of with the the basic point that was actually made by Levantin, Richard Levantin, in his biology, his ideology about tuberculosis, uh, in that case, a bacterium, but this this germ theory perspective that the reason why tuberculosis is no longer a problem is because we have vaccines and, and modern allopathic medicine. And his really astute observation and case that he makes in that essay you know, that you can look and you can see the progression of, of serious illness with tuberculosis. And you can see that the, the vaccines more or less appeared post-festum. Right? It, it, it ceased to be a serious health problem in the places where vaccines were claimed to help solve that problem before the vaccines were introduced. And he also made a very compelling case that this had to do with the, the simple working conditions, um, in particular of the, the working classes, uh, that was the, the real factor behind that. Uh, so I had been familiar with that. Uh, but had never really considered the broader implications, particularly because as so much of this virology critique has highlighted um, the flaws in the basic way in which capitalist bourgeois science has approached bacteriology are heightened to an even more extreme and sort of fanatical level uh, in virology. And it seemed to be suggestive of these these really radical problems. But again, as a, a layman, you are um, still feel, I think, very naturally and, and not inappropriately that one has to be very cautious about wading into this field. Um, I, that was one of the reasons why I was so disappointed that no one of the supposed experts was willing to engage in these arguments, uh, so far as I could see. And so Trying to assess the material to the best of my ability, to look for critiques, it, I came to the conclusion that this argument was a serious one that was worth uh, presenting and worth engaging with, and it was not being done so. And so I thought at the minimum, uh, it needed to be brought forth in a way that would at least force that engagement. Um, and so that was the, the project really uh, at the core of this essay. but. At the same time, um, it, it, it meant dealing with material uh, that was beyond me, lots of things that were uh, beyond my competence to check or to verify. I did the best I could and tried to verify what was possible. Um, and one could always read further and try to train in further areas and, and, and go forth. Uh, but I ultimately felt that I was sufficiently convinced, like I said, the argument of this camp and this broader critique had to be engaged with. And so I thought about how 
could people be convinced to finally engage with it? Uh, and that's what led me to thinking back about the reason why people weren't engaging with it. And that was, the, that was these, these deviations within the Marxist camp from uh, what I would take to be a, an appropriate Marxist approach to science uh, and among the left more broadly uh, and even more profound you know, scientism. And so that's what really dictated the structure of the, the argument as well to say, you know, it's only in part three that the real core or the most contentious part is brought forth. But the prior sections are trying to work through why we haven't been able to even begin that discussion uh, and to hope you know, that maybe this article could play some small part in, in pushing that discussion forth. Well, well, I think it will. Um, and I think the fear you described is not unusual for people. It, the, the, the thing that people start to think is, who am I to do? Who am I to say this? And the experts will say, how dare you? Like, you, you're not an expert. And even within the left or even within the working class movement, not only is there a sense of shame, what, what do I know? There Internally, there's an attack culture of you got this wrong, you got that wrong. so shut up, you know, which, which actually is very destructive, I would say, for, for the development of a working class intellectualism. Um, and both, both in Gramsci and in Lenin, and there, are, there is this notion of the, the working class intellectual, which basically really is attempting to say that this separation of mind from body, which, which capitalism has attempted and successfully achieved, needs to be unified so that the, the mental part of your work and the and the physical part of your work are no longer separated, but are integrated. So that really anyone is free to share an idea because we all have ideas based on our own experience. Um, and so I actually think you've shown a lot of courage, not just within the context of the bourgeois critique of any of your stuff, but within the, a critique that you could, that often we, we who are fighting this often wage against each other. So I always encourage people to say, just put it out there. And I, I find myself, having to fight for that fight that instinct to shut up on this on this you know on what's left and and have been explicit in trying to like no i don't have to be right just say what i think you know and that is what i think we're all going to have to do and you have made a i do believe you've really helped uh make a contribution here um but i would also like to get into that into that material in terms of the science stuff before we do though i mean i think what tom is talking about about this hesitancy as a as a lay person I think that's what many people, many, many folks have always thought, well, maybe it's the scientists who need to come forward and speak to this. But as you said, Tom, scientists haven't come forward. They've either been silenced by big powers or they've been censored if they do speak or they're just invalidated like Andy, who, who, who has a PhD, who, who is a doctorate. And they're just like, what? Because there are many times where... He's spoken about things, and I've heard people from certain groups say, Andy is a lunatic on this. Like, you know what I mean? It's so, so either you are silenced, right? Repressed, or you're censored because you're not allowed to be on social media, or you're just, you're just dismissed. So, what good does it do that, you know, that you even might even have legitimacy under the experts' lens? Yeah, and I think I just um, would just expand a little bit, I think, because Andy's point about a, a working class intellectual culture is, is 
really relevant and significant and the the lack of one right that is a result of a of a very conscious deliberate and systematic ruling class program to quash that right so that we are in a situation where the only places where people can pursue because of course uh, we have to criticize this category of expert and how it's wielded against us but there is a real specialized technical knowledge that is withheld from part of the population uh, and given to others on the condition that they you know commit themselves ideologically and also that um as i think uh, richard levin's notes right that the way the he said that the, the ruling class has this problem of they want a um, a bourgeois revolution science without the iconoclasm of enlightenment uh, and so they want the innovative innovative scientific engagement without the deeper criticality that often comes with it and he said how do they do that uh, by shackling you with debt by um, giving people in these very narrow um, sub subjects right and uh, research pursuits um, and by all these other forms of, of disciplining that we know are subject to academic um, you know uh, discipline on the other hand we know that we have been living through a time where independent working class supported uh, intellectual projects have been you know massively reduced and so you know, even we're in this absurd case where people think they can be pursuing some marxist approach through the academia um thinking they can work around it or somehow outsmart their funders uh, with predictable results and so we we are in this situation because we do need to be rebuilding um there is technical knowledge and there is work that goes into being able to understand these things work that that could and should be real pleasure uh as well that is withheld from the population under these current arrangements and part of the the problem that we have to respond to is um in our conditions already not after the revolution but now how can we be building up i think the the working class intellectual culture the independent working class institutions for training sharing knowledge etc uh, that would allow us to actually you know make these critiques even more you know um competently and i want to make one other point and jessica you might have to want to say something here as well i mean not about this but just i know but um tom i i think you're i think you're aware that at least i have been i think jessica and eduardo we we over here have been left right more left right critics I, the idea for us is the left and the right are a false division, not one that you share. Um, I think you're aware of that. And I, what I value is your willingness to bring that discussion over here, even if you're like, no, Andy, I don't agree with that. that you all are wrong in that. Um, so to me, that's something that more that has to continue and carry on is we can identify our lines of difference, but then figure out how do we share information where we might agree or where we can enlighten each other. So I just want to put that out there as something that I think is integral to the prospect of rebuilding a working class movement. And Tom, if that's news to you, you can, you can sign off if you want. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, of course, you know, I think um, my, my presumption is that um, you would be, left as far as i understand it uh, and i still do think that that means something i do understand how that has been uh, adulterated um and misused that category uh, but i still think it's useful i think the ruling class understand who's left and not as well 
and it's very easy to see and uh, I think it helps us too but uh, but I also do think of course the uh, the artificial barriers to discussion as managed by the ruling class like all the borders that they try to impose uh, are ones that benefit them yeah I mean just to say like the the obfuscation of language is so fundamental to so much of this and I, I mean in a we do constantly every week. I feel like on this show, we're like, yeah, 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 I know. Team sports is left, right, you know, do away with it. But then I think we we also get pulled back um, into what we see as more authentic and like historically grounded understandings of, you know, for instance, the world, the word left, um, or even like in your article, Tom, the, you know, the definition of science, right? Um, stuff like this, like, it gets obscured, but I think if if we pursue a definitional inquiry like that, oftentimes we do. It leads us back to like the more the more meaningful um, like clarity, right, and <laughs> the relationship between language and material reality. Well, should we get into like some of the meat of the article? Yeah. Um, yeah. Why don't we? Or part one. We're going to focus on yeah. One part one too. Um. What do you think, Tom? Do you want to kick off what your part one is about? I actually have a potential way of introducing it, if you'd like, that goes into other fields of science I've been thinking about. What would you like to do? Sure. I mean, I think uh, kind of almost the more the more interesting thing is also me defending the article or presenting yeah. the ideas of the article, but also like you adding, I think, is, is interesting and very productive as well. Let, let me try to give a framework because I very much agree with the framework. So let me try to give a framework for how I understand the article, some parts where I would add like other areas of science that prove your point and then take it, let's just take it from there. And then you can say what part I get wrong or something like that. And other people could do the same. Does that work for you? Yeah, sounds good. I mean, I, one other thing before, I, I appreciate you saying that you would, the way that you would almost go about this is defending your article, because I, I think there would be questions from the left <laughs> about certain aspects of it like so i think i'll pose those questions and and you'll respond to it if people have yeah. that in the audience so thank mm -hmm. you for saying yeah in, in defense of your article but go ahead and so there's a the opening line uh in 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 part two is uh let me, let me get that hold on just make sure i get it right science is a product of the society that owns it and that's such a simple line. Um, and in, I will say that I've been, I have been a socialist and Marxist much longer than I understood that, that that point you're making right there, that line. Because while I was a, was a fully opposition, op, opposed to capitalism, not, and it, I'm not talking about having a PhD or anything like that. I'm just saying whether I had a PhD or not, while I was a fully opposed to capitalism, I almost looked at science as separate from capitalism. And would marvel at science, would talk about what science could allow for, what the socialism that science would allow us to produce. And for that reason, I kind of segmented science away from the system out of which produced it. Science, capitalism, I do believe that modern science is a product of capitalism, not vice versa. And so it, it's going to have all the problems and not just corruption, but the deep rot and the deep the deep harm actually to workers that is implied out in capitalism. So that modern science is an attack on workers, not something to benefit them. And in that, in that regard, and this is how, this is my way of looking at it. And it, and it, 
And that I've been coming to that very much more so when I look at like the the, the when we talked to Eric Lerner, who talked about, well, everyone's been taught the Big Bang and that theory of how the universe started. But he goes, that theory is wrong. And any of us astronomers who tried to talk about a different theory that doesn't require dark matter, which never has been produced, that doesn't require dark energy, which has never been seen, which doesn't even talk about black holes, which says even all those can be pushed aside, but actually just talks about the universe as being organized around electromagnetic forces rather than Newtonian gravitational forces. Anyone who said that has been pushed aside and and like discarded in the same way that we've seen critics of COVID discarded. And in a similar way, um, I see the same thing. So that's on the largest scale of science, the, the universe. But if you bring go down to the smallest scale of science, um, there are problems in particle physics. The the, the, the attempt to find new physics because the uh, the standard model of all these gluons and um, various particles that they say things are composed of, that everything in the universe is composed of, while it's self-consistent, doesn't seem to explain all the things that we are seeing. And so they've built these giant uh, particle accelerators, uh, and they built this latest one in CERN, hoping to find the Higgs boson. They said they found the Higgs boson, but there are people who say, no, that particle you found you have no evidence that that's a Higgs boson. You're just claiming it because it's 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 appearing at a unique energy, you know. And I actually think that the people who are critical of that make a lot of sense. And so, what are they doing? They're going to build a, a larger particle accelerator to try to find new physics again. Um, and it's a, it's both. It has all the elements of both corruption of a, of a kind of Pharisees that says this is the way science is going, both in the astronomical world, but also at the very small particle physics world. It's a control set of people. It's so. It's it's not just a money making venture. It's a corrupt operation, and I would say ultimately both of them are put are pushed by a war making state that wants to control and has a vision of what science is and wants to control it for its own ends. Um, and so, for me, when I when I and then of course if you put into the COVID stuff and even people who are this guy who's been studying archaeology and anthropology and saying. There may be evidence of, of, of communities well before hunters and gatherers who were, were producing, building buildings and having domesticated animals and things like that. And that evidence is being pushed away by the modern archaeologists who say, no, this, there's a certain time frame when, when hunters and gatherers existed. And then, then only at this particular other time did, um, did people begin to like, you know, domesticate animals and build buildings and things like that. Of, of any size and scale, even though there seems to be direct physical evidence that giant buildings were built well before we have said. And so I started to see capitalism and capitalist science as this mob operation that was people just controlling it and and using it for their for their aims. It's seeming like disparate aims, but the, to me as a Marxist, it all is under the aims of what the capitalist needs. And so your critique to me, seems very natural in terms of how a Marxist would look at capitalism. Oh, man, or I'm, I'm sorry, at science. And so I just want to add that in addition to your skepticism about virology, which I want to hear more about, and I know Jeff uh, definitely is somebody who's been talking about that, and he's a partner of ours, Workers and Students for Choice. Um, I feel like you've just opened up a com complete new way or what I would think is an obvious way that Marxists should be looking at this. Um, if, if they thought capitalism was at the core of all our problems. 
So that's my starting point. And maybe you can say what you want of that and say, add what you, that's what I, that's what I gleaned from that first uh, reading that I took. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's exactly um, the point. And I think in particular, and why, at least to me, this uh, left, right and liberal distinction is, is useful in some sense is that the specific conception of science that predominates um, in the hegemonic liberal ideology right, is that science continually progresses of its own accord. Once it gets off the ground, it just keeps going. And this is very uh, straightforward idealism. Uh, it's the idea that these ideas are, are driving themselves and that this fairly autonomous process continues to proceed. And I think many self-described Marxists take this this liberal perspective that science has these potent internal dynamic mechanisms that will drive it forward. Uh, and one of the largest points of the essay is that from a Marxist perspective, of course, very specific material conditions have to obtain for science to occur. And one of the broader points I try to emphasize in the essay is that those conditions are exceedingly rare. Now, for most of human history, scientific enterprise has been minimal. Uh, and it was a very narrow conjunction um, of all these factors uh, that allowed the kind of modern science to emerge and always under very complicated constraints, always with contradictions, because most ruling classes have, to go back to that, that Levin's quote, uh, most ruling classes have thought the iconoclasm that comes with it is just too unbearable and have preferred the stultification of tradition and myth, right, even at the cost of efficiency uh, or productivity and so forth. Of course, there are, again, one must, it's so easy to reduce or simplify because it's always uh, the complicated action of, you know, even within the Marxist camp too, uh, we slip, I think, into, you know, thinking of crude, oversimplified classes rather than, um, in particular, the historical Marx, you know, the Marx of 18th Brumaire or revolution and counter-revolution in Germany, where he was always making these minute and clear distinctions between these different strata of classes and their interest and how they operate and how, for instance, um, you know, bourgeois liberalism emerged at least as much, if not more significantly, out of, you know, sections of the petty bourgeois, right, that were in the conjunction to be producing this idea that could carry forth this historic revolution of the bourgeoisie against uh, feudalism. Uh, and so thinking about the complicated conditions in which science occurs and just re reminding ourselves of this basic fact that it's it's not at all obvious that that science is the norm or that science is, is going to occur. Uh, and then the further point is to say, looking concretely at the progression of class society through the course of capitalism, the uh, emergence of financialized imperialism. Uh, monopoly capitalism, uh, and do these changes further the tendency for capitalist society to incentivize and produce science, or do they in fact um, restrict and diminish them? And one of the key arguments in my essay is that those conditions which allowed this wonderful flourishing of science, which is one of the the, the phenomenal things which uh, capitalism did bring, uh, and did bring tremendous innovation, tremendous increase in the capacity of humans to manipulate the natural world and to understand it, and something that I think um, 
will absolutely expand under socialism and communism. Um, but one has to consider the material conditions that are undergirding this process. And then on top of it, the, the internal contradictions in the scientific enterprise itself. Uh, in particular, something I think we've already alluded to, this fact that in the initial stages of science, uh, the, the kind of great scientists that we think of, uh, were very frequently polymaths, people engaged in a, a broad range of sciences, keeping abreast of what was going on in different fields. Uh, the experiments were relatively simple, easy to reproduce, and indeed even Marx and Engels were polymaths who were profoundly interested in the um, the scientific innovations going on in their time uh, and could have, at a fairly layman level, um, a reasonable familiarity with them. And it's just a, an incidental point that I always think is worth reiterating that it, the Marxist perspective was totally articulated prior to the second industrial revolution, prior to electrification, right? Um, which particularly when we hear Marxists who think that the, you know, the uh, means of production have not been sufficiently elaborated until every Chinese worker is slaving in a Foxconn factory. Uh, one recalls what were the kind of material conditions that Marx thought necessary for, for socialism, and they were pre-electrification uh, conditions. Uh, that's just a tangential point, but to realize how radically things have changed since then, uh, and also that the these material conditions are, are so different. Uh, and so in science, we have this development of the more scientific knowledge there is, naturally, the more um, differentiation needs to occur within the sciences for any further progress to occur. Right? At a certain point, it is simply impossible for any individual person to fully rigorously study even their whole general field uh, or even what we would consider a subfield. And so we've gotten progressively towards the point where anyone who wants to rigorously pursue the sciences um, has to specialize in a very narrow, specific area. And that necessarily entails taking an awful lot on, on faith. Right? When the science implicitly or directly, however you want to conceive of it, means, you know, these empirically verifi uh, verifiable um, experiment-based knowledge. Huh? But when that happens, of course, we perfectly reasonably say science is either knowledge acquired in, in such a way or knowledge that we can reasonably believe to have been produced in such a way. Uh, and so, of course, the scientific enterprise can expand, but you need to have some mechanism that is ensuring that's the case. And for a long time, that was I think just more or less directly chalked up to the esprit de corps uh, of the scientific community itself, which was then refined into the modern institution of, of peer review. Uh, but as I point out, particularly in part two of this essay, uh, it is absolutely beyond any doubt that the institution of peer review is, is, as it stands today, totally incapable of providing that function. And so necessarily, Right? The people who are engaged in the scientific enterprise today are undertaking loads of information based on, on faith with an inadequate mediating mechanism, and they're doing so in a circumstance in which society has become more hierarchical, more corruption, right, more concentration of wealth and power, which have increasingly undermined 
the basic social conditions which would allow science even under the ideal conditions to occur. Uh, all of this, meanwhile, while the actual percentage of the population that can engage in scientist, science is again being restricted, and those people who are engaging in the sciences are more and more disciplined and indoctrinated. So when one tries to even, and, and that was a, a totally cursory, I think, even look, which probably missed over important points, but even these bare outlines, when one actually surmises this from a materialist perspective, what kind of science does one expect uh, to arise from these circumstances? And and instead there is this ideological shell game where uh, this noble picture of science is substituted for the material reality. So you 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 stated that there would be naturally a, di a differentiation within um, the greater expansion of uh, science. Uh, what is there to make then like scientific consensus? Because at some point there are notable topics such as evolution or climate change or the safety of genetic genetically modified organisms. Um, critiqued in a in a in a consensus that is uh, across many uh, different cultural different cultures or different regions of uh, or uh, like in, globally, but with scientists coming up with the same conclusions and coming together to find that consensus, so that they can then report on it and give um, their public like share publicly what they what they think is important to for people to make decisions on like there there has to be some many would say um uh, some consensus for people to rely on so that they can make uh, public opinions or policies or etc uh, based on that um yeah so i think so so your point is uh, how is it that in some ways it works or that there is some functionality to it is that right that there is mm -hmm. yeah uh, and I scientific think, consensus uh, specific yeah on that um so i think that of course on the other hand there's the the countervailing tendency that there's all this corruption but also capital uh, the ruling class has a tremendous interest in a good deal of science right the, the, their the profitable enterprises that they're pursuing their military pursuits um increasingly i think their their direct uh struggle to yeah, again, cripple, maim, and subordinate the population. All of these things entail um, adequate scientific mastery. Um, so there, there is that tendency that there is, even in this, uh, the the ruling class has an interest in making at least some science effective. Although I think we are living through also probably an increasing rift, as I know in the essay, towards um, covert science that is precise and particularly technically sophisticated. I think these conditions do allow for a lot of technical sophistication, uh, if not solving a lot of these big picture problems that Andy alludes to. Uh, on the other hand, though, um, the, the, the fact that science can come to these consensuses, I mean, I think the first point I want to make is that it's a bit of a tautology, right? The people who are allowed into the scientific community are people who agree with or are typically willing to agree with a lot of these positions. And once they don't, they tend to be excluded and one arrives at a consensus. Uh, I, I think particularly when one considers on a broader scale, both within 
um, the you know imperialist core, but also even more so globally, what portions of the society are are permitted to enter into this category of scientists? And it is a a very inaccurate sample. Right? It's not a representative sample of the global population. It's one that has a a tremendous investment in the current current order of things, uh, which is tremendously invested in, in the social order. And so I think when you consider these factors, then of course it's not surprising that these consensuses um, can be formed, nor also I think it's important to remember can uh, a highly flawed consensus doesn't necessarily debilitate uh, the practical operation of science, especially on a granular level. It's certainly not the case that a theory, especially at the highest level of its extractions, must be correct in order for effective science to occur under it. Sure. I guess the, the, the additional thing I would say is all of those areas, climate, uh, climate change, theory of evolution, molecular biology, all conform to the model that Tom's describing, which is one that is essentially, at least within this, just if you just put it within the scientific community, all of those are constrained by the peer review process where you have people at the top. Not only are they not incapable of deciding, like of getting good science, they are positively, it's in their best interest to keep out ideas that might threaten the way they got to the top. And the way they got to the top was climb this information hill, an information hill that was not proven by experiment, but was largely pe things pe people came to from saying, Oh, somebody told me this. I agreed to it. Oh, then there was this other thing. They told me this. I agreed to it. Now I can get to this top part where I can actually do an experiment on it. But I had to get there. I had to agree to all the information beforehand that I had no knowledge of based on experimentation. That's number one. And I'm putting aside the idea that this all occurs under capitalism and a profit motive. But climate climate change is and, and this notion of scientific consensus is, in fact, a statement of the kind of control that they operate because there isn't a consensus around climate control. There are people. Or climate change, there are people who crit critique the idea that that the framework that climate change that's happening is happening just from man-made carbon carbon dioxide production. We have we know a person we talked about last week around the who around the dimming. He might acknowledge some of those things, but he's he himself is saying no. A lot of this is a result of the solar radiation management techniques that we were using. The so-called solar radiation management techniques that are producing those problems, and other theories are out there that would say something beyond that. And in theories of evolution, which this notion of gradual change that is seen through potentially genetics, um, uh, that that's how the how how species evolved. We were talking earlier about Lynn Margolis, um, who basically you no know, said no. There might be some slow changes, but the actual development of species is a, is often a revolutionary act. It actually occurs from some major event that's happening that's unexpected that produces the possibility for a new organism to come about. Uh, that was uh, symbiogenesis that she talked about. And she was criticized harshly when she brought that up because again, it didn't conform to the, to the model. And molecular biology itself, even though I would say there are things that it has gotten quote right and basically it's not a complete fraud, the, th the framework of molecular biology says the best way to understand an organism is to understand its DNA and to manipulate its DNA, because that's really what an organism is ultimately about. That is a framework there. And one must ask themselves, is that actually a true framework? Is that actually true about living species, that they are decided by almost exclusively their DNA, and everything else is a result of that? 
I would contend that that's actually a flawed framework by which to understand humanity or nature and things like that. And yet that's the road we go down. I think we go down it, not just because scientists are flawed, but I, I think, again, there's a military, industrial, capitalist complex that has an interest in pursuing this particular angle. And, and as um, you mentioned in your second one, that was the woman, um, Federici, Sylvia Federici and the Callisto quote, who basically saw it as part of the separation of, of the human from themselves, the body from the, from the spirit. Um, and that is part of what that whole gene stuff is doing. So the, the, the very notion of a, of a scientific consensus around that proves in my, I, I feel, Tom's point about the way capitalism deals with science. I, I, I want us to go further into Tom's article. Uh, I, and again, I, I'm not trying to take more of this point. There would be people here who would say then, if anything goes, that's why we do have flat earthers, right? People who believe that they can prove scientifically that the earth is flat if we don't have some consensus um, around how the world functions and operates using a scientific method. That's up for discussion, but I, not, not to... I would say, don't. yeah, flat earthers are going to be in the discussion. And welcome about the way the universe is constructed. Come on in. If you want to believe um, that the world revolves around the, the earth and you're a Copernican believer, come on into the discussion. And I think the question, though, is, and this is where I think science has, has gotten itself in the in all those places where people criticize the 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 astro astronomical science and the particle physics is the separation of observation and experiment from theory. All those areas of, are people are moving more theoretical, more theoretical, with without any sort of observation to back it up. Um, and if people have observations that they've that they've drawn whatever conclusion from. That's part of the discussion, and I, I welcome it. So, but you're not necessarily saying that you agree with it. Doesn't have. To, I agree with their. I agree with their their right to come up with their own theory and 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 have that be in the place the discussion place for workers to figure out how is this world constructed. Tom, or yeah, yeah, just... I, I I completely agree with uh, Andy's disposition, which I think is the 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 rational democratic and scientific one that they can put forth the idea uh, and i think the whole point we're making i mean i have to say uh i have not investigated at all the 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 flat earth argument um but i think the critiques that we're speaking of uh we can cite very specifically the flaws that appear in the dominant ideas uh and that when those dominant ideas are questioned that um rational and scientific arguments are not actually mobilized to answer those queries uh, so usually what is responded to is these, you know, blunt appeals to authority. Whereas, in fact, I don't actually think that people have to respond to consensus to uh, quash the concerns of flat earthers. There's not any uh, mass consensus statement of astronomers or um, anyone else so far as I know that has tried to deal with this because that's actually not the the level on which the... the um, dispute seems to be occurring, whereas we're saying specifically in a lot of these areas um, in modern capitalist science, profound problems have been raised and the response to them has been discipline uh, or slandering uh, rather than a serious engagement, whereas there can never be a harm in engaging 
with an idea. No, no idea is dangerous, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I don't see a fundamental difference between, you know, the the anger over people not being able to voice critiques of, say, like the COVID vaccination program and flat earthers wanting to ask questions or advocate for theories. I mean, at base, right, it's it's just a matter of like boxing inconvenient or um, threatening ideas out of the conversation, right? Um, and that enables the status quo to continue. It benefits the ruling class, right? And I mean, as, as Tom has illustrated so articulately in the article, like they're only interested in science insofar as it benefits them, right? Insofar as they can weaponize it. Um, same thing with like health, right? Like it's not in the ruling class interests for us to be healthy. Like, yeah, healthy enough to be their slaves, but that's it. Um, I, I did have a question just about, um, I feel like, I feel like people are going to um, ask something like this and I haven't read part three yet. So maybe this is for a part two conversation, but um, Tom, is there, is there like a, a difference or is there a meaningful difference between a critique of virology, I mean, not just a critique, but like one that completely explodes the entire institution. Um, is there a difference between that critique and an argument that viruses have not been proven to exist altogether? Um, and, and, and like, does that, does that distinction matter? I'm just sort of anticipating the, the germ theory, terrain theory debate um in in our audience's mind um as compared to like a lot of the sort of framing that you do um and critiques of the institution in especially like the part one section so i don't know if that question makes sense hopefully it does no i, I think I, I get exactly what your point right because there is the the broader critique of germ theory um and even though he doesn't um Articulate in those terms what, for instance, Levantin presents. Uh, he's talking about uh, tuberculosis, right, which is a bacteria. Uh, but he makes a very similar argument. He says that uh, actually capitalist science has excluded these social terms. He says when you go to medical school, you learn that it's caused by this bacterium. And he says the bacterium is a precondition that needs to be there, but actually it's not a very useful way for explaining this disease at all. And in fact, focusing on it tells us virtually nothing. But he does say, of course, the, the bacteria is there. And from what I can see, uh, bacteria are well characterized. Uh, we, we can see where they are and they're, uh, that they're clearly involved in the disease process, it seems, although I think there are probably meaningful questions to explore about um, their nature of as causative agents, yeah, particularly like Levantin's point that um, even, he says, um, mesothelioma uh, he says asbestos is not an agent right it is a um, social manifestation of the agent which drives it which is the the ruling class which puts us in these poison environments and makes us vulnerable to these poisons in the first place it seems to me and and this was another one of my reasons for the uh, the, the trepidation into entering in this area because there's a lot more research i could do 
uh, and really would need to do, I think, to speak confidently on these questions. From what I've seen, there are even more profound questions raised about virology. Uh, and that in particular, I think one of the, the the difficult areas that needs to be explored is that on the one hand, a lot of anti-virology um, critics, for instance, are very fixated on this this question of um, isolation and is this can this isolation occur? Uh, and I do worry that at least as some of the more simplified versions articulated. Uh, fall back into a, an extreme kind of mechanism, an atomism that itself is is alien to the the broad kind of Marxist approach that we spoke about earlier, and um, the idea that it would actually be possible to fully isolate something from the life process that it's involved in, uh, and see it nonetheless exactly as it is in that life process. I'm not sure that's the case at all either, uh, and I, I think there are real questions to ask about that more simplified. Form. But the problem is that mainstream virology does seem to explicitly imply that, and, and even more importantly, is based on these really crude experiments. And that's in particular the basis of uh, part three of this essay is looking at um, getting away from the big theoretical epistemic arguments about what would be needed to prove the existence of this or that kind of particle or phenomenon but saying, what is the actual historical concrete basis for these claims? What have they actually founded their assertions on? And as those have been put forth in Virus Mania and by a lot of other critics, it is remarkable when one looks at the actual experiments that establish the basic assumptions. Uh, and when one looks at how those experiments were conducted in the context of this massive ideological um, predisposition, towards finding this so this causal explanation from uh, a virus in these cases, um, then I think one does have to enter into these yeah, profound questions. But I do think it, it is a different point. And, and I do think um, there are fascinating things that a liberated science would be able to discover about what is going on with the DNA interactions inside and between us um, and that the whole idea that we can separate you know, there are humans here and then there are bacteria and there are viruses and there's no such thing as a human with bacteria without bacteria either uh, that a human is already like uh, Deleuze and Gattari say in the introduction to anti-Oedipus I think you know since each of us was several there was already quite a crowd that <laughs> there's already this massive bias towards singular atomistic bourgeois agent uh, and then there are the invaders on his terrain right or, or whatever it might be but that's not true at all i don't think we are um already a multi-organism being yeah, that is itself um like mark said nature is our inorganic body uh, so on all these levels trying to cut and parse this reality of course um without kind of going too far off the path, the the mechanistic clock metaphor that has driven so much of bourgeois science has been an incredibly useful metaphor for identifying, isolating, understanding a lot of factors. Uh, but there's a difference between saying, in some ways we are like a clock and saying we are a clock. Uh, and in the same way, there's a difference between saying, you know, is it useful to, in some circumstances, 
picture us as in isolation from these specific particles or things that come into our body or interact with it. In some ways there might be, uh, but that picture is always going to be uh, an abstraction. Uh, and I think in the same way, um, neither the virologist nor the anti-virologist, and again, for stru structural conditions, we don't have the conditions to do the good science, which I think would be possible, um, have probably been able to give a full account of what goes on with our bodies and our relation to you know, what are called vir viruses in virology. So you've brought up Richard Lewington, um, and you've um, you've stated the case why it, this science um, has been used um, as a way to just uh, to to default to the experts and how that there's problematic issues with that. Uh, and so biology as ideology or or this ideological aspect to it then. What is the, if you can just briefly, as you laid out, and everyone should just read this article, read your essay, I will link to the episode notes, in the episode notes, as the, what is then, like, if you can give us a brief, just um, outline of how it has been used through your Marxist lens as a way to um, gather the masses of, like, to use science to be able to basically just push an ideological or an agenda onto the people, the working class. If you can just maybe expand on that historically. Yeah. Um, so I think there is a profound limitation in uh, the now kind of common vulgar Marxist critique of science um, that I think we've kind of already touched on. Uh, Jessica pointed to it. This idea, for instance, that um, Capitalists are invested in science. They want the best science because they want to be maximally productive. Related to this is the idea we've seen very common from kind of pro-COVID narrative leftists uh, that capitalists want us to be as healthy as possible because they want to exploit us. Right? Uh, that, you know, that why would capitalists poison and cripple us when, uh, as Jessica alluded to, and I think there's, uh, I quote, Tony Benn. Uh, making a very astute comment, something along the lines of, uh, you know, a healthy, confident, uh, well-educated nation is hard to govern. Uh, and so the ruling class don't want us healthy, well-educated and confident, healthy enough to do whatever specific job they have deemed for us, etc. Um, but that interest is always balanced by their absolute terror of us <laughs> revolting right, and overthrowing them in the same way with science. Ruling class are interested in science as a way for um, manipulating the world in an effective way. But as Levantin always articulates, there's another aspect of science to science as an ideology, a way of manipulating us, right, to make us do or believe or agree or accept. And even though a lot of Marxists will acknowledge this to some degree, there tends to be a vulgar materialism which assumes that the first function always dominates, is always predominant, that capitalist science will always prefer, at the end of the day, the basically true science because it's the best way to manipulate, uh, manipulate the material world. When a look at the history of science or the things that have called themselves science suggests a very different conclusion. And of course, this goes all, all the way back, as I said, to the critique of political economy that Marx launched in capital, uh, where he pointed out that initially, as capitalists, without knowing, without knowing what they were doing, conjured up this 
system of relations that we now call capitalism. They needed to understand it as well, and they had a tremendous interest in a fairly scientific account. Uh, and this is where classical economics, Adam Smith, Ricardo, etc., did furnish tremendous and very useful insights, which Marx was able to critique, uh, to articulate uh, the, the picture that he put forth in Capital. In the same way, throughout the history of class society, even post-capitalism and post the emergence of science, we can point to a number of body of thoughts which have emerged, which have clearly uh, had the predominant and more useful function as ideology, even to the extreme detriment of their practical practical function. And, and the example that I cite in the essay in particular uh, is the, the race science that was elaborated in the United States in order to justify and maintain the institution of slavery. And the remarkable thing about this institution is when one looks at it, the depth and the precision and the detail, because this is one of the things that, that when one raises fundamental concerns about something like virology, even even myself as a as a skeptic will look at the you know, Wikipedia page about even <laughs> a virus and read all this detail and specificity, and it just seems like it couldn't possibly be. Right, that, that there's a fundamental flaw at the basis of this presentation until one looks at these minutely defined, totally fantastic, mythical, fraudulent slave diseases. Uh, and I mean, of course, they're, they're fascinating when one looks at the uh, the absurd implications of them uh, that, um, you know, diseases that pathologically drive slaves to want to escape or eat adequate food. But uh, but the the real elaborateness of the system and that it was a real check because an important part of the slave economy in in the uh, American South were these um, certificates of good health. Uh, in fact, the the uh, doctors who specialized in slave medicine made a tremendous amount part of their income. So this was a real cost that slavers were paying, uh, a real check on efficiency. And it was to these these guys. Right, these scientists or doctors, often a, a vague line between them, upon which the entire thing was nonsense, right? And yet it was so elaborate and was such a, in some sense, it was a real impediment to the slave economy. If you looked at the prescriptions that arose out of it, they were obviously not the way to maximally exploit this population. But of course, there's there's an interrelation. Here, right, one even thinks of uh, the point I think Marx raises in Capital One as well, that, that slave societies are um, also marked by the crudeness of their physical instruments. Uh, and that's because a uh, population maintained as slaves um, are more likely to brutalize and break their instruments than populations who are more, in some sense, effectively manipulated by the capitalist wage slave relation into not destroying their their equipment. Um, and so having a greater appreciation of these contradictions and the relationship between efficiency, productivity, technical capacity seems to me to have dropped out uh, of a lot of um, you know, our, our comrades' understanding. And so when, when one surveys this history of the real sciences that emerge, and of course it's not just the specific Negro science or race science that was used in the South, uh, but phrenology, indeed, most science about race in in the western capitalist world uh, has been 
to a significant degree pseudoscience. And it was really only uh, with the the defeat of Nazism and the tremendous uh, impact of this great working class defeat of the the fascist bearers of the most extreme permutation, but again, a permutation of what was the scientific consensus, right? to go back to a point that a lot of the, the majority of doctors and scientists in Germany, right, certainly did not go against and many enthusiastically agreed with and supported the Nazi program, found it consistent uh, with their, their views. Uh, and likewise, in America, I mean, um, Nazi Germany drew tremendous amount of its race science. In fact, sometimes had to um, soften the extreme racial categories that were used in, in American racial science in order to fit it to their specific circumstances. Um, and one remembers that that was science at the time, right? Not just by those people, but by the other members of the scientific community, which we are supposed to defer to, to be um, uh, maintaining this institution. Um, then, then I think these questions become more valid. I think, I mean, before you go on, and I just want to say a brief comment. I think that that is what is clearly evident for anyone doubting that science is just neutral and we should just trust the facts and defer to the experts. When historically, as you pointed out, what issues arise from doing that, and as 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 grave and dark as our history does tell, we at one point in history have deferred to the experts and look what has what ha what that has gotten us to. Um so it's clearly ideology is is what drives what anything. I mean even just phrenology deciding what the size of our cranium is going to, to mean of our mental capabilities that is the scariness of, of science. Just I just want to add, I just briefly wanted to add um, just another, I think, really important point that you bring up, I think, in part one of your article that relates to all of this is your is your critique of the sort of linear progress view of history and of science, because I mean, yeah, like with these examples, especially the, the slavery ones, or like it is so easy to look back and critique in hindsight, but the conclusions that people draw from those examples so often seem to me to just be wildly like out of touch with, um, I don't know, they just, they're, they're logical, right? Because so many people will say like, yeah, all that was horrible. And now look how far we've progressed. And now everything's not perfect, but it's so much better. And I'm even thinking about like, I know you referenced um, Harriet Washington, medical apartheid in your piece, which is a fantastic book that, you know, tracks the the history of experimentation on African Americans in the U.S. and it looks at yeah the pseudoscience of a lot of the um, justifications for slavery and then all the way you know pretty much up through present of all of these like horrific experiments and even she though like her conclusion it's been a while since I've read the book but I remember being really 
kind of flabbergasted that like ultimately her conclusion is you know she doesn't like she's like yeah i mean we we still need african-americans to participate in trials and research right and we just need more informed consent but like ultimately doesn't really advocate for breaking with <laughs> these institutions um despite having done this research herself and i just think i just bring it up because to me it's like such a stark example of what we see so often with just the dismissal of it under the premise of linear progress yeah i think in particular the the one of the most remarkable things is the uh, patronizing and paternalistic note that struck even among kind of informed critics of this tradition uh, that is absolutely unwilling to engage or take seriously that the profound skepticism, for instance, that the African-American community of the United States has towards the medical establishment is not just a hangover from some past mistakes, but a, a, a very lucid and critical understanding of what the relationship between them and this institution of medical science in the United States is uh, and how they should appropriately protect themselves from it, which should be often their first priority when they when they engage with it. Yeah, and, and this is why for me, I struggle to separate fascism and capitalism, except to say that this thread of this thread, or rather this theme of eugenics that has been in society for so long and capitalist society for so long, it's it was it certainly was in the United States, it certainly was in Germany. I certainly could you could see the the project of fascism as sort of eugenics on the march, eugenics with tanks. Um, you know, and using that, but I have, I struggle to be honest, to dis describe the difference between capitalism and fascism, except as a, as it as it's more grumpier state kind of thing. Um, but the, the other thing that I was thinking as you were talking was the, the reason that story about slavery was so meaningful to me. And I do feel like I want to read this quote, um, because it really, it really helped me draw a line between the so-called progress of science because what was happening then under slavery, I see no functionally no different from this monstrous thing that's happened with these injections, these global injections that are going on. Um, that when people go like, "What are they doing?" That they're harming people. They're they're going to killing people even. Um, and people have theories about like, is there a depopulation agenda? Which I get. I don't really. I'm just saying it's it makes more sense to say that this harm that is being done with these injections is intentional. When you listen to this quote. Um, so this was uh, oh Samuel Cartwright, M.D., talking about ways of treating unruly slaves medically. Um, and he basically says, and as you put, he comes to the conclusion, a good whipping is necessary. And here's how he writes about it. The complaint, the complaint of the slave is easily curable if treated on sound physiological principles. The skin is dry, thick, and harsh to the touch, and the liver inactive. The liver, skin, and kidneys should be should be stimulated to activity and be made to assist in decarbonizing the blood. The best the best means to stimulate the skin is first have the patient well washed with warm water and soap, and then to anoint it all over with oil and to slap the oil with a broad leather strap. Then to put the patient to some hard kind of work in the open air and sunshine that will compel him to expand his lungs as chopping wood, splitting rails, or sawing with crosscutter whip or whipsaw. 
any kind of labor will do that will cause full and free respiration in its performance. I don't see it like if someone's going to talk about the progress of science from that point to the to 2022 in terms of Pfizer and and Moderna injecting all these children with things that are killing them. I want to know where that progress is because that's my the the reason I there's none. Like it, that that is just a line of attack. Um you know historical attack. And I feel like the best for me I now believe I guess I would have at one point saw what is happening in terms of this COVID moment and with medical field and things like that as some sort of deformation, as some sort of um, going too far. And actually I come now to, I am coming to believe that what we are seeing is actually the way, the real way our medical system works. It's just being more revealed and it's true on all, it's true on, and all areas of medicine. I think it's also true of all areas of science and it's been true throughout history, not just slavery we, that we, oh, that was weird. We did that weird thing. Look what that guy's doing. But I think that the precision of their language, the, the use of certain terms that I am, you even note some of the experiments they did to, to, to justify their, their, th these uh, theories they came up with. Um, it, to me, it's a straw. It draws a consistent line, not a line of progress. Yeah, I, I just think absolutely. And and that Cartwright was cited uh, directly in the book. Uh, Jessica referred to, um, and then I looked even more expansively at what he was saying. And it was just remarkable, especially in that moment where we saw um, what almost certainly was the, the deaths caused by the vaccinations being repackaged as a new wave. Uh, it was actually almost exactly when I, I first came across that. Uh, and this remarkable, audacious quality of this um, ruling class ideological imposition combined with that, because uh, the remarkable thing in that passage you quote, right, is that uh, surreal combination with this scientific specificity about the carbonization and even the, the remarkable coincidence of beat them and then what will really help them is a little bit more hard labor. And I do think that just encapsulates uh, um, the, the remarkable class determination of these uh, products. Right. Well, I mean, I'm glad you all brought up COVID. I mean, I think the thing is that we've on, I think I've mentioned here that Pfizer has a history of experimentations, especially in 1996, where uh, they were experimenting uh, pharmaceutical drugs on children in Nigeria. and. Um, we see that people have now embraced Pfizer, but um, at one point, um, you know, the WikiLeaks cables showed that there were um, children that died because of medical experimentation in Africa. Well, given what we've just, I, I think we've shared, Tom, you have the last word. Do you want to uh, share anything else besides what we haven't asked you about or we have not covered before we end this episode? Um, I think my my main point would be uh, a simple appeal uh, to, again, that left, which I still think exists and I think is capable of redemption and is necessary of, of it because, of course, we need to bring ultimately the, the, the class and historical analysis is the only way to make sense of this information. Um, and one of Marx's favorite quotes that I cite at the introduction of this paper is, De omnibus dubitandum. Uh, everything must be doubted. And this is the clear red thread that flows through all the work of genuine Marxists, this 
open-mindedness, willing to critically examine things, not being frightened of the conclusions that they lead to. Um, and and just the, the whole project of this paper, uh, and I wouldn't even be upset if it, if it turned out to be, in fact, I would be happy and fascinated to find out that I was wrong, right? That there there is lots of fundamental truth because I don't think the conclusions of the paper draws are even contingent upon the truth status of virology. Uh, it is more about our relationship to this institution and ultimately our, our relation to, to the ruling class. And I think often about uh, Mao Zedong's comment on the, the nuclear uh, bomb, which is very much real, uh, but that it was a paper tiger nonetheless. Right? That, that ultimately the impositions that the ruling class try to put on us and, and try to terrify with us with um, we must always remember first of all that they're the ruling class right? and and the people that work for them are, are primarily the people who are working for the ruling class and the ideas the information that is put to us right we must always think where does it come from and why is it in front of us how has it gone here and what's the goal what what is the ruling class or or the non-ruling class, whoever puts it in front of me, what are they trying to achieve? Uh, what I'm trying to achieve by putting this information forward is to get people to at least engage, right, and to take up this project of inquiry and discussion and debate, uh, which I think has been lacking and which is necessary for us to move forward within the corona resistance movement, within the broader left, um, and of course, ultimately, as the, uh, the the critique that will lead to our further elaboration of overthrowing the ruling class and establishing the conditions in which real, meaningful, uh, liberated science can occur at all. Well, Tom, I really thank, first of all, I thank you for writing these articles um, and I thank you for sharing them with us and taking the time to talk with us about them. Um, I We definitely hope to do, to carry on with this discussion with you. So. Um, thanks a bunch. I think you've actually done a real service in that theme of what, what was the, uh, doubt everything, you know, I think you have done us a service by getting people to remind, reminding people about that being itself a revolutionary act. Yeah. And just an appeal to listeners to check out the articles because I feel like we scratched just like a tiny, tiny bit of the surface. They're really, really rich. So uh, that does it for this week's episode. Thank you, Tom. Um, joining us from uh, Freya link Sunkoft. I'm sorry for the pronunciation. <laughs> but uh, the free left future in Germany that you've joined us um, and discussed your group, as well as your piece on virology as ideology that we'll have in the episode notes, a critique of ruling class solo science, which we did part one and we examined and analyzed uh, part one, science and class society. And we hope to have another episode with you on part two and hopefully part three and part four, depending on your time in schedule. Um, and so we look forward to that. What's Left is a weekly political podcast as channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, uh, turn on your notifications to any of our platforms on Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Rumble, or Telegram. You can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. 
Uh, and if you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. Um, I'm Eduardo Barca with co-host Jessica and Andy Lipson. Uh, you can find our social media handles as at Don Eduardo Barca and at ZTKE and Jess's Twitter handle as at jhomie89. Thank you very much, Tom, for joining us. We'll catch you next time and uh, look forward to that discussion. And uh, see you on next time. Tom. Thank you very much. Tom. Thank you. All right. Ciao.